I think that managed futures continues to go through this constant evolution where new edges, new ideas, new behaviors of markets come out. And that is the whole game. That is what wakes you up in the morning. That is what's challenging. That is what gives you ulcers at night. Uh, it's how are the market participants causing that aggregate macro behavior to change. And that ever newness is what makes this industry interesting. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Now let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Questions uh, slash observations, uh, which you may or may not agree with. So first was just a question. So do you use machine learning, you know, throughout the program? I mean, would you say it's a machine learning, trend-following strategy, you know? No, I wouldn't. We have a portion of our portfolio, about 40% of the risk of the portfolio are in machine learning, or are in, at least partially informed by machine learning. And to be specific, what I'm saying is 40% of our portfolio is composed of trend signals that are then differentially weighted based on the outputs of these machine learning tools. And I should again say that these machine learning tools are not neural networks. They are things like decision trees. They're things like kernel regression, where as a research scientist, I can go in and I can tell you exactly why this market and these trends are being weighted the way they are. I can go in and I can tell you, oh, it's because in these periods it did particularly well, or in these periods it didn't do particularly well, and that that's the source of the entropy that is causing this decision tree to make the decision that it is, to, to come out with that, with that bifurcation, with that, with that decision, with that rule. So it's not a black box in any way, shape, or form to us. And that's critical in terms of how we develop these models. Moreover, we're really sensitive to the idea that any mechanism, any source of value add is going to break. You know, George Box, the statistician, once said, and again, it's been quoted by a whole bunch of people, but I like to say George said this one, is that all models are wrong. Some are useful. And so when we compose our portfolio, we build that portfolio with the assumption that some fraction of the models that we're using are wrong, that some fraction of the value adds that we're using are wrong, especially at least some of the time, like any other model. And that by taking a diversified approach, by combining about 30% of our portfolio and very, very academically sourced, classic trend-following signals, about a third of our portfolio in what we consider our specialized short horizon models, which don't use machine learning, but do try to add value through, in effect, asset selection, and about 40% of our portfolio in these algorithmically informed trend models. That allows us to have more confidence that regardless of what happens in the future, we have a fighting chance of being successful capturing the next trend or the next allocation of risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's interesting, and, I, and in a sense, I'm glad what the, with the answer you gave, because of course, trend following comes from a fairly simple way of of trading the markets, and 
And a lot of people would argue that the, the reason why it is successful still is that it's not too complex in its core. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't innovate, doesn't mean you shouldn't, you know, evolve, but but at its core, it's not too complicated. And therefore, personally, I, I certainly have a, you know, there's always this this worry that if you overcomplicate something that is relatively simple, that at some point it stops working. But absolutely. You know, Occam's razor holds in trend following like anything else. And so if you go into even even our most complicated model, you go into it and you look at its individual pieces, what you realize is it's a combination of really simple, transparent steps that are just being systematically applied. And that it sounds like what we're doing is really fancy, but what it comes down to is we're just being very efficient and very systematic about how we learn those simple decision rules and how we constrain what can be learned by those simple decision rules. Every element, every sub-sub-sub signal in our portfolio is either a you know, binary or ternary, positive, flat, negative, or it's a, I'm going to be, it's a continuous signal. Some of them will be, I should be somewhat positive, somewhat flat, somewhat negative. And it's just a combination of those elements. And they're all trend following. There is nothing in there that says, I should be short this trend. There are some things that say this trend is very, very strong and has gone a long way. And that on a forward going basis, my expected return is lower than what it would have been if I hadn't gone through that extremely strong period. But we're never going to fight the trend. It's always asking the question based on what we've seen in momentum and assuming that that momentum continues, at least to some extent, what is the best portfolio that I can construct? It's simple things layered on top of each other, tightly constrained. So, Rob, on the actually, this is a big debate uh, right now as well, is that pure trend versus non-pure trend. So it sounds like you're more on the pure trend side, so focusing explicitly on trend. Is this... Is there a strategic reason behind this, or what is your thinking on the difference between those two, including other strategies into a trend program? So I'm going to break the trend, so to speak, of managers. We are a pure trend program, and this is even crazier. Our flagship program is a pure trend product. Why do we do that? If I were to say that you know, our flagship program was a pure trend product 15 years ago or 10 years ago, no one would bat an eye. That would be unsurprising. That's where the industry was. Today, that's not the case. And there are a few reasons for that. You know, one has to do with the business economics of a flagship program for many managers, especially those with large legacy infrastructures. Another part of it is trend following is a rough ride. And many managers will add in other elements that will smooth that ride over time. But let's think a little bit what that means to smooth the ride. Because when we think about trend following, and I'm going to steal your words here, but I think they're very, very good, trend following is fundamentally a divergence bet. You're saying that markets have moved a certain degree, and they're going to keep moving in that direction. They're not going to revert to where they used to be. They're not going to revert to the historical range. They are going to break out, and they will continue that move for as long as they can. 
there are only a few different sources of return that have that behavior, that are profitable on market dislocation. You have trend following, and then you can buy options. And buying options has a very, very strong negative carry. In fact, you know, one of the things really popular right now in 2018 is people shorting the VIX. Well, what is shorting the VIX? It's selling options. It is betting that the market is, at the very minimum, not going to go down, if, if you think about mostly on puts, but it's certainly not going to break out in either direction. So if you think about trend following among dislocation-based strategies, it has, over the long term, provided a positive return, not just the excess return of of the cash collateral, but typically a bit more, especially during these periods of crisis. So that's, we think, the, the fundamental, in the words of economics, like if you were to think about the arrow to brew security that is trend following, it's a small payout in most environments on in expectation. And hopefully, if everything works correctly, but not in a guaranteed sense, a big payout if things hit the fan. Either direction. Things could go into a mania or a, a crisis, but managed futures should do well. Other than options, there are no other investments, at least that I know of, that have that same payout characteristic. And so if you were to start adding classic risk premium, if you were to add a long bias to equities, if you were even to add a long bias to you know, commodities, those, conver- those bets break down in a crisis. They are things that will muddle or cancel out part of that crisis return. So when we designed this product, it was for the view of, let's be a component of a portfolio that is complementary to stocks and bonds and that traditional allocation. And if we were to add in those convergence bets, that carry, that value, we would be going against that goal. The benefit of, of being a young manager is that we were able to build our infrastructure and our research team and everything else consistent with the program that we have. And as a result, we were able to create a flagship product that was just trend following, that that met that institutional need. Where we've been able to differentiate ourselves and where we've been able to knock on wood, continue our relative degree of performance, is in these value adds, in these adaptive measures, in how we follow short horizon trends, in these particular edges that we've created. But that is all in the context of trend following rather than striking out. Now, I like to say that with the class, investing in any premium like momentum as follows the 80-20 rule, you can get 80% of, of the return, especially on a correlation basis, really cheaply with a small number of assets, with a really simple signal. There are any number of indices out there, and I should know because I created some of them back in 2010. But that's not going to capture the entirety of momentum, and that by pushing in that other 80% of labor and squeezing out that other 20% of return, you can actually have a strongly differentiated product that is very useful in a portfolio context, and that's what we do. So if, if you think about sort of trend following as, as, as sort of the, 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 the core of, of, of what you do, you know, to some degree, maybe you can, you, you can think of, well, that there must be a limit to how much juice we can squeeze out of trend following, right? I mean, what, what are some of the hard problems that are left to be solved in, in this space, in your opinion? I mean, what are the things that you, <laughs> you really want to uh, 
achieve or overcome in, in that particular space? Oh my goodness, there are so many. The, the challenge, of course, is to know how confident you should be in any particular solution to them. Now, when we, like any other manager of size, when we have someone come in and they, they show us their program and they want to you know, be hired or they want to be bought out, and they'll show us these sharp two strategies because they think they've you know, solved one of the critical problems in trend following. And of course, you look at that and you, you know, let's put it, let's put it this way, probably 9,999 or 999,999 out of a million of them are probably going to be wrong. These are literally billion-dollar questions. If you could answer any of these questions to any degree of satisfaction, you could put the rest of us out of business, at least eventually. One of the largest challenges is, when's the trend going to stop? Like, how do you, what is the proper way of identifying when reversion is going to start? When, when the trend has gone from not having incorporated, so basic model of trend following. You started out at price level 100. New information comes in. Prices start to rise as some market participants discover the new information. Then the trend followers come in because the market started moving. They'll start repricing. At some point, suppose the, the underlying information says that price was at 100, at 100, now it should be at 200. At some point in the classic version, your trend is going to pass 200. And then it's going to keel over as some people really know that it's supposed to be 200. They're going to start shorting the market. And then it'll flatline and, and become range bound at 200. Being able to identify when the trend has become fully valued consistently over time, especially in periods of crisis, would be immensely valuable. And it's an incredibly hard challenge because for any bit of information, Chances are you don't know, even if you have the, the bit of information that happens to be driving that market move, you don't know that that's the only bit of information that's driving that market move. That incompleteness of understanding makes the timing of reversion really tricky. And it gets even worse when you go through a crisis where everyone may know that, you know, at an S&P value of in the 600s, things are oversold. But because of liquidity needs... Some people are still selling, and you don't know when that's going to stop. So trying to time reversals in a generic sense, absolutely a source of, of significant value add to a trend-following strategy, because that would allow you to reduce risk at the very minimum, if not re remove risk. Another great one, how do you identify the impetus? How do you identify when a trend has begun that is going to persist rather than revert? And we've spent a lot of time in our specialized short horizon models trying to identify which short-term signals are going to persist and which ones are going to revert. And I would say we've, you know, if we're lucky and if we assume that our in-sample results are, are in any way consistent with the out-of-sample results, we've improved our success rate by a couple percent. To do so, even to add a 10% margin or a 5 or a 10% margin would be huge. It'd be revolutionary in the space. Another one would be, let's finally solve the execution question. You know, one of the big challenges as a trend follower in today's day and age is how do you execute your trades in a very, very cost-effective way? And I'm not talking about clearing costs because once you get to a certain size, if you can negotiate down your costs, well, if you don't negotiate down your costs, you're not doing your job. But in terms of your actual execution, your market slippage, 
And that is a very competitive game that even if you invest a huge amount of capital in it, depending on really the supply and demand dynamic of the market at that point in time, having the best algorithms in the world won't help you if every other CTA is trading at the same time. So those are just a short example of some of the challenges, some of the complications that, that we struggle with every day that we try to add value incrementally to, but are still elusive. And more importantly, we think that even if we get some edges, those edges are going to disappear over time. So maybe just a quick question about the recent growth of the firm. I thought that maybe, so in the last few years, you've definitely been growing, increasing your investor base. What do you think some of the success factors have been for Alpha Simplex? And what, what has led to, to help, helping increasing your footprint in the space? So Alpha Simplex has been successful, I think, for a number of reasons. The biggest has been the consistency of our program, of our sticking to our mandate, and our focus on transparency. So if you're an investor in Alpha Simplex, you, you know, we, we think gone are the old days where you don't know what the holdings are, and doubly gone are the old days where you didn't know why we were holding the positions that we are. You know, if you invest in really any of our programs, and you want to see the holdings of your portfolio at the end of the month, that's publicly available. If you want to understand about the positions that we hold, well, we're entirely a trend follower. If you look at the price chart of a typical asset, unless we're in a tight range, you will know at least what direction we're holding. You may not know the magnitude, but you'll know the direction. And we go through a lot of effort to try to make it very accessible as to what we do as a manager, what kinds of algorithms we use, and our goals or our, our let's call them our constructive philosophy about how we build the portfolio. When you combine that with a very, very consistent investment process, and I'm not just talking about being a pure trend follower, though that's helped, but also being clean and clear about our research process, about how we take ideas from either blue sky research or academic papers, build them, test them, put them in out-of-sample testing, and then finally deploy them, that consistency is also something that has given a lot of investors, be they full discretion, probably less so for your average retail investor, but certainly on the institutional side or your investment advisor side. They want that consistency of process. They want that consistency of mandate. They want that consistency of understanding. And then finally, I think that we do a very, very, again, consistent job of risk management where we look, when we think about risk, we don't just think about volatility like many managers over the short term. We look at volatility over lots of different horizons with the view that what has just happened in the last few days may not actually be representative of what happens in the next few days. Our deputy CIO, a guy named uh, Alex Healy, who is you know, one of the more intelligent people I've ever met in my life, has a saying, which is that if your risk model thinks that a 2% drop in the S&P is a four sigma or five sigma move, which in fact it would have been last year based on short-term windows, then your risk model is wrong. Like that is wholly unacceptable because the chance of a large upset like that is completely well within the, the realm of reason. Like 
<laughs> so um, I don't do this anymore, but uh, I used to, uh, as a kind of a, a side gig, uh, was an advisor to some students at Harvard College, helping them with statistics, academic advising, and the like. And I was aligned with one of the houses, a house called Dunster House. And on the night of the election, I was running the projector. And we had CNN, we had Fox News, we had MSNBC, you know, cover the, the full bases, and then we had the Mexican peso, my particular addition to that set. And so if you were tracking markets on the night of the election, you'll remember that the S&P dropped more than 5%. The NASDAQ hit its overnight drop limit. It, it couldn't trade lower. The, the, the stopping mechanisms, the, the fail-safes kicked in. If that happened in November, and you know we've had similar instances that were very short-lived more recently, it's totally reasonable that that could happen during the day. But your short-term volatility estimate may not capture that. So when we build our risk models, we want to make sure that they are aware of that jump risk, that they take into account that longer history, that we don't just look at volatility, but we look at other moments, that we look at your value at risk, that we look at your net asset exposures and your gross asset exposures and things like your DVO1 and your concentration in your portfolio. And again, that comprehensive approach to risk management has been another strong selling point to our clients. Finally, and I think this is something that has been a communication story more than a product story, is that Managed Futures has gone through a, a very interesting period in the past, which is that, or in the recent past, which is it hasn't had very strong performance, but we have had a few instances like in Q1 of 2016 where equity markets actually fell and that Managed Futures, ourselves and the industry, performed quite well. We had a correlation, a very, very negative correlation during that time, and it served as a proof point. And so that investors, as they become more educated about managed futures, have realized that if everything in their portfolio is all green and is always all green at the same time, well, maybe they're not well diversified. And that therefore, something like managed futures, and especially one that is designed to be a complement to a traditional portfolio like ours, is probably going to receive a certain amount of good attention. No, absolutely. Speaking of uh, receiving good attention, we've also seen that some strategies have grown very quickly, in particular, some of these low-cost products, of course. I mean, is there a limit to how much, because you also talked about the risk of everyone doing trading at the same time and all of those things. I mean, is there a, a, a sort of a limit to how big you can be if, if we talk about you specifically before you feel that this is actually going to impact you know what we do or because the range of managers i mean we have the, the you know we have the the 100 million dollar managers we have the 35 billion dollar manager i mean the range is huge and there's always this debate about you know does size kill performance or or at what point does it kill performance so the tiny little compliance angel on my shoulder is going to be uh, kicking me while i say this i would say that there is a trade-off and it's partially a trade-off of how you trade. The more short-horizon momentum, the more reactive your portfolio is, and the more biased you are towards an equal risk allocation to all of the assets that you trade. So that is to say, if you want to hold the same potential exposure to soy meal as you do to the S&P 500, you're going to have constraints as to the size. And that's going to be a function of both market liquidity as well as some of the regulatory constraints of exchanges or of the CFTC or any number of other bodies. 
And so what I would say is that if you want to have a reactive portfolio that doesn't have a long bias, then there will be constraints as to how big your portfolio can be. And I will say that our fund cannot be, at least in its current form, anything close to the size of the, you know, the, the really large firms in this space. We, we will be constrained at that point. We're not constrained yet, but that it's our intention to constrain ourselves before we see that degradation. Because, in fact, we do have that short horizon yeah. emphasis, and we do have that bias towards trading in size some of those less liquid futures. In terms of the industry as a whole, that's a much trickier question, and it's going to be something that varies over time. So that I, I think a good example of this might be in base metals. So that there are some times where base metal vo- uh, volumes have been very low, and there have been times where base mo- metal volumes have been very high, based on growth expectations out of China or out of supply considerations out of South America or any number of things. And then based on where we are in that range of volumes, there are going to be some times where CTAs are a hefty fraction of volume uh, of some markets, not necessarily base metals, but of some markets, and there are going to be some times where we're very, very little. I think in some of the agricultural markets, if market, if, if producer markets are very, very low, CTAs could have a, ch- a sizable chunk of that. And I believe the good folks at New Edge did a study on that in 2013, which if you haven't seen, uh, I would highly recommend. I think that their approach is certainly a great first approximation to some of the considerations. I think that once you account for some of the CFTC limits and whatnot, it's not quite as bleak as they paint it. Not that they paint it particularly bleak, but it's not as bleak as they paint it. But I think it is a consideration. So what does that mean? It means that when we think about portfolio liquidity and asset liquidity from a risk management standpoint, yes, we care about that. But the larger concern is not so much what fraction of total volume is being driven by CTAs. It's what fraction of today's volume or the current period in today. So this hour's volume or this 15 minutes period's volume is being driven by CTAs. And in so much that 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 you can avoid those points of, of concentration, when you can avoid the crowding, you should all else equal be more successful. At least if you're going in the same direction. Yeah, no, that I mean that's true. And also, I mean, I think that's the whole debate. I mean, how big is this industry? I mean, this industry has grown, but mainly because we've got one big company that was suddenly included as a CTA, <laughs> uh, which has 170 billion under management. I mean, you take them out, and suddenly the CTA industry maybe it hasn't grown that much. So I mean, it. But I. But so it's more about the participants, whatever we call them. But you're right. I mean, it's clearly do you get the, the liquidity you need at the time you need it. And, and, and so I take that on. Yeah. What about sort of uh, sort of starting to, to maybe to getting towards sort of the end of our conversation, but just sort of in terms of opportunities that you see in, in space uh, or, or maybe for, for you as a firm, well, what are the things that you get most excited about? I mean, what do you, what, what do you think is compelling uh, in you know, in this day and age, now we're entering 2018. and So the compelling things left in this space, fortunately, are always changing. And, you know, I think we've had a few interesting possibilities, interesting opportunities come up uh, in the recent past. You know, there's been a shift towards what you might call as extended markets, which will be substantially less li- liquid, but do trade different instruments. And so while it wouldn't necessarily, it, it could potentially, but won't necessarily fit that 
crisis alpha niche because, again, if you don't have liquidity, it's very hard to tactically trade in a crisis, just from first principles. But it could be very attractive. And so that's something that I think the managed futures industry as a whole is looking at, even if it's starting to bend the definition of a futures contract. I think that managed futures continues to go through this constant evolution where new edges, new ideas, new behaviors of markets come out. And that is the whole game. That is what wakes you up in the morning. That is what's challenging. That is what gives you ulcers at night. Uh, It's how are the market participants causing that aggregate macro behavior to change. And that ever newness is what makes this industry interesting. So maybe turning that around too, Rob, what are the things that keep you up at night? <laughs> what are the things that worry you? I mean, what are that's the... That's the DIY, DIY work. I mean, that keeps him up at night, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Fortunately, not so much anymore. That was, that was a very short period, but very enjoyable period of my past. Now, now it's infants. But other than, other than my, uh, my small son, the things that keep me up at night are the big unexpected, unknown macro shocks. You know, suppose that whenever you construct a portfolio, especially managed futures, we in the U.S. would say you, you probably use leverage. In the you know, U.K., they probably will say you've geared it to a certain volatility. But anytime you do that, you are increasing the risk of your portfolio in order to achieve some amount of desired volatility. And if you're using the Kelly criterion to scale that, great. If you're using a static uh, risk allocation, my humble opinion, less great, but it still works. But all of that is based off of some assumption of volatility and some assumption of correlation. And as we all know, market distributions are not normal. Those fat tails exist, and they can surprise you. And I think there are many instances where in managed futures, we have all been surprised. If you plot the, you know, the, the you know, worst returns or the daily, the daily volatilities of any CTA manager over the last few years, you know, you'll see some jumps, you know, and then you'll see, I believe it was like December 4th or December 3rd, 2015, sticking out like a sore thumb to the downside when Mario Draghi came out and surprised everyone with a change in expectation. Those are the things that you worry about. Those changes in correlation structure, those changes in trend, because for better or for worse, and if you're a trend follower, your correlation structure and your trend signals often change at the same time. And while we try to spend a lot of effort, try to mitigate the cost of that, you can't get rid of it. It's, it's kind of a, a, a central weakness, a central pivot of the systems. So that's something that you, know, you always worry about. The second thing you always worry about is just simple model decay. Yeah, I think Trend following has a lot momentum as a factor, as a feature, has a lot of reasons why it should persist for a long period of time. Yes, it has these behavioral features, but it also has this kind of jack of all trades aspect where it can detect mispricing and capture shifts that may be informed by who knows what, but it will capture some fraction of. And that should persist in so much that markets are not perfectly informed and that price does not perfectly incorporate information over time. But anything we do is going to degrade over time. And so the, the constant worry is that one, will our models decay? And that two, in our fight against that decay, in our fight for an edge, have we added in some accidental overfit? And regardless of how careful you are, 
there is going to be some possibility there. And so that's what I would say. It's big macroeconomic shocks that we don't have time to capture and change direction for and model overfit. And those are, those are the two boogeymen that keep me up at night. And what about, maybe not a final thought, but a close to a final thought, if you're going to sort of share something that you feel is important right now for investors or even a rising star, someone who wants to do what you do, you know, one day, what would that be? Could be a piece of good advice or something? I mean, what? I would say... Uh Four things. One, take up ballroom dancing, but um, more seriously, <laughs> I would say the first thing you should realize is that any model that you construct, any model that you read about is going to be wrong. It might be effective, it might be useful, but it's going to be wrong. The EMH, and there, there are a number of critiques out there that say, look, if the EMH was true, it would all of a sudden fail. You know, the, uh, the joke about You know, if you have a behavioral psychologist or a behavioral economist walking down the street along with a uh, efficient markets practitioner and they look down, they see a $100 bill and the behavioral economist asks the EMH practitioner, why don't you pick up the $100 bill? Well, he'd say, well, you can't. It's not actually there. If it was there, someone would have already picked it up. So the, mar the models, the markets, they're all, or the models that you've learned, the theories that you learn, none of them are going to be perfectly correct. And that's so much, there's so much difference between theory and practice. That said, models are useful. Models can give you information, can inform your views, can inform your intuitions, and can inform your process. And if you combine a disciplinedly constructed model and hopefully a disciplinedly constructed view on probability, you can be, over the long term, with a fair probability, successful in markets. It's not going to be sexy. If you find that you've returned, you know, 200% overnight, you know, either you're immensely lucky, you're a crook, but you're certainly not following a disciplined process. You know, one of those, one of those two, but certainly not the third. If you're going to return that, have that kind of return you, and following a disciplined process, it should take you a very long time to develop and to hone that skill. And then finally, if you want to go into the space, actually the best book I've, I've actually ever read, the one that I love more than anything else, if you want to learn probability, I would, I would suggest picking up Joe Blitzstein's book on pro, uh, Introduction to Probability. And if you want to learn about CTAs, I love Robert Carver's book on systematic trading. You know, it's certainly a, it doesn't go to the, quite the same depth of, of what I think anyone really does in production. But in terms of building out the concepts, building out the intuition, building out the understanding of how you think about these programs, I think Robert Carver's book does an excellent job. And if you want to learn about managed futures, of course, Katie Kaminsky here is sitting across the table. Can't recommend her book enough. Could, couldn't, couldn't agree more. And, and, and just reminding the listeners that Robert Carver has been on the podcast so they can go back and listen to him, as has Katie, of course. I mean, from my point of view, I would, I would just say that You know, if you think about it as an, an investor, right, in this day and age and, and with all the things that are changing, with all the things you've been talking about, I mean, what's the most important question they can be asking themselves right now? Oof. If I knew that, I could make a lot of money. I would say that the thing you have to remember more than anything else 
is that trying to find out the right question to ask is often as important, if not more important, than the right answer. And that if you, if, if you could tell me with great confidence that you knew the right question to ask today to be successful in markets, well, then you, would, sir, would have a very, very valuable quantity on your hands. I would say be humble. I would say, and I said this at the beginning, everyone thinks there's a lot of noise in markets. All noise is, is a lot of information and a lot of action of people who are probably behaving fairly rationally using different objectives and different information sets than you are. It reminds you that markets are incredibly dynamic, incredibly complex, and that noise or interventions by the ECB or anything else are things that we have to deal with. And you can complain about them all you want, but if you want to be successful, you have to be humble, you have to take what the market gives you, and you have to learn and adapt and adjust to that state of affairs, not the one that you want to happen to be the case. Perfect, excellent. On that note, let's wrap up this fascinating conversation recorded live here in Miami. Rob, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and sharing your thoughts and experiences with, with Katie and me. It is so important that practitioners like you come and share these ideas because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change happens. And to all our listeners around the world, let me finish by saying that I hope you enjoyed and got some value from today's conversation and that if you could share these episodes with your friends and colleagues so that the conversation can continue. From me, Nils Kostrup-Larsen and Katie Kavinsky, thanks for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged. And in the meantime, go check out all the amazing free resources that you can find on the website. Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.